0: your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello and welcome to episode 201 of Public Interest Podcast with your host Jordan Cooper where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with John Calvin and Sarah Stern. John Calvin is a gay Christian Palestinian immigrant born in Israel as a Muslim and novelist in the West Bank with a different name. His grandfather, Sayed Bilal, was a former head of the Muslim Brotherhood in the West Bank. His uncle, Muaz Bilal, was a uh, uh, failed suicide bomber in Jerusalem. His other a relative, Othman, sent a wave of suicide bombers to Jerusalem. His uncle, Bakr Balal, was a military Hamas field commander, and his uncle, Obada Balal, was an explosives expert. Um, he uh, is an advocate uh, um, against the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement uh, against Israel. So uh, he supports Israel, and he is a religious freedom activist. Sarah Stern is the founder of the and president of the Endowment for the Middle East Truth, also known as Emmet, which is the Hebrew word for truth. She's a pro-American and Israeli think tank and policy organization. She's a former director of legislative and government affairs at the American Jewish Congress and the former national policy coordinator for the Zionist Organization of America. She's contributed to the drafting of the Syria Accountability Act, the Kobe Mandel Act, and the resolution to support Israel building a security fence. She's a member of the Executive Committee of the American Jewish International Relations Institute, the author of two books, Saudi Arabia and the Global Islamist Terrorist Network, America and West Fatal Embrace, and her second book is Cherish Illusions. John, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. What a litany of, of accolades and titles you guys have. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Great. We
1: are doing great. Thank you for having us. Excellent.
0: So the first question I'd like to pose, we'll start with John, is what are you currently doing or have you ever done to advance the public interest and why?
1: I've been doing quite a fair amount of speaking engagements uh, from universities such as Yale uh, and Brown Community College uh, to uh, writing a book. I am currently working on writing a book, uh, trying to educate people uh, that the BDS, mainly the BDS, is uh, contributing to violations of human rights by extension. Uh, whether people realize it or not, they often uh, attempting to hurt Israel, the only democracy in the Middle East, is hurting the civil rights of every Middle Eastern residing in the area.
0: So just two points of clarification. Is Turkey also in the Middle East and is it a democracy?
1: It's in the Middle East-ish. Well, it, it actually falls, half of it is in the Middle East and the other half is in Europe, geographically. Uh, is it a, d- a democracy choose to be up until Erdogan took office and uh, he dismantled the Turkish democracy?
0: Another thing I wanted to ask you, you said that the BDS movement is a violation, contributes to the violation of human rights. Really, many individuals in the United States would think that they they tend to potentially fall to more of the left of the political spectrum. Think that they are supporting BDS as a means of supporting uh, human rights for Palestinians, and and is they're trying to prevent human rights. In fact, former President Jimmy Carter of the United States uh, has uh, made an analogy between what's going on with Israel and the Palestinians as what went went on in in the mid to late 20th century, with apartheid in South Africa. So it seems like you're taking a different stance than many others. Could you elaborate on how the BDS movement might actually lead to violations of human rights in the Middle East?
1: Well, to begin with, the BDS movement uh, accusing Israel of several things, one of them being apartheid, which is incorrect. It's simply incorrect. Uh, The segregation between... Palestinians and Israelis is segregation between two countries. It's like saying that segregation between Canadians and Americans is advertised. That is just so effectively
0: the West Bank and Gaza are separate nations already, if not formally.
1: Well, they are not separate. They are not independent nations, but they are not Israelis. They're, and but you
0: mentioned you were born in Israel in the West Bank. I was
1: in 1990. Uh, up until 1993, with the Oslo Accords, that was Israel. Uh, post that, the Oslo, Accord came, the Oslo Accords came, uh, granted a terrorist organization at the time, uh-huh. a presidency and a government, and gave them the West Bank and Gaza.
0: Interesting. Okay, so a lot of historical developments, a lot of elements of identity, it's a... It's a a uh, cauldron of of identity and and political entanglement in the Middle East. Now, Sarah, you have quite a lot of background dealing with the Middle East. Having could could you tell us a little bit about how you you began moving from science, how you originally got involved in the Zionist Organization of America, and and clearly there's a path from there to AJC to starting Amet. But how did you first come to be interested in uh, in politics uh, affecting Israel?
2: Well, I think, um, essentially, even before I started um, working for the ZOA, you know, I was born into a family where most of my relatives were killed by, by the Nazis, mm-hmm. and um, it, Israel it was a very regnant part of the identity of many people who you know, were born under those circumstances. I'm named after my aunt who I never met, who apparently I always thought was killed in Auschwitz, but um, it wasn't until I was um, in Vienna that I had a wonderful tour guide whose grandfather was a Nazi. Poor thing. I mean, I would hate to have her kind of legacy you know, of memories. And um, her, her hobby was um, Jewish genealogy, and I could never find my aunt's name when I went to Yad Vashem in Israel or to the Holocaust Museum. For she, our
0: listeners who don't know, Yad Vashem is a Holocaust Remembrance Museum in the state right, of Israel.
2: Right, right. Um, so I, and it, this wonderful woman was able to find out everything that happened. And she told me she even knew the, the name of my father's other siblings and when they died, etc. And um, she never did make it to Auschwitz. Her little shtetl was called Burschow, and they used that as a transit place. And when the Nazis arrived there, they were so anxious to kill Jews that they didn't wait to get some of them on on the trains. And um, she was forced to strip down naked and um, dig a hole, and she was mowed down. She also had two twin daughters one's name was Rizal and one's name was Rachel and my daughter who now lives in Israel is named Rachel after her Um, so of course I was always I was a school psychologist before I started this but I was always obsessed with the news of Israel because Mm -hmm. it seemed to be carrying on the legacy of my people and you know for some of us it seemed to be like a denouement that the world was marching away from hatred and evil and Mm -hmm. towards goodness and um, you know um, so that and I was a school psychologist and it's a long story but I ended up quitting because of mama guilt when my Son Noam was in a Hanukkah play. Um, I was giving a feedback conference to a Vietnamese boat child who, when I took the intake conference, um, the, the parents, even though I had a translator and I thought they understood that learning disabilities has nothing to do with how good um, a brain she has, and you know, I found that um, protective services had to be called, and she had the rice pot. Um, thrown over her head. So (laughs) I was very, very careful to make sure that the parents really understood during the feedback conference. And my son, Noam, was going to, was four years old, was in a Hanukkah play um, about a mile away. And I was like jumping out of my skin, realizing if I don't get them to understand this quickly, quicker, quicker, he's not, I'm going to miss the play. And by the time I raced down that Mile to Young Israel Nursery School, there were seven little Maccabees on the stage and one in the teacher Mara Helen's lap crying, and that's when I decided to quit, and I became um, very involved in pro-Israel advocacy, pro bono, and got to know some people under the reign of Yitzhak Shamir, who was working in the Israeli embassy, and when Arafat signed the Oslo Accords on September 13th, 1993, they said, Sarah, we're no longer in Washington. We need somebody, um, to tell the truth about Arafat. We have a sinking suspicion he's not going to live up to one iota of the accords he's just signed. So I said, I want to do this, but just do me a favor. In my naivete, I said, don't give me any notoriety or publicity and don't pay me. And that actually ended up being a good thing for many reasons. People would have said I was working for the opposition party or something like that. And... um, and then Mark Klein called me up from the ZOA and asked me to develop a Washington shop. And um I went on from there to the American Jewish Congress and went on to develop my own think tank.
0: So it sounds like both of you have identities that were that you inherited through your birth, being uh, Muslim and uh, Palestinian and being the progeny of Holocaust survivors that have really shaped a lot of right. uh, your inheritance has shaped a lot of your current story. Right. And over here um, with John, you chose to, in a sense, reject some of your primary identities that you inherited through birth. And then I see Sarah, you have embraced uh, the identities that came to you at first. Um, and yet your paths continue to intertwine. The Oslo Accords clearly had an impact on both of your lives. Um, and then, of course, we find ourselves in the same room here. So,
2: Can I just correct something? Yes. Yeah, sure. I don't want, my parents were, my, my father got here before the Holocaust and my mother was born here. Huh. But I'm named after his older sister that remained because she was married to a rabbi. Huh. And I think people who are children of Holocaust survivors are in a very special category. And I feel I shouldn't take that from them because my parents did not survive the concentration camps or anything. Okay. Okay. So
0: Now we got that settled. So, so John, you, I'd like to hear a little bit about your story, quite a powerful story. Um, at one point you, uh, you, you began realizing that, uh, you were not heterosexual. And then you also began realizing at a different point that, um, Islam wasn't speaking to you. Can you talk about that personal journey? Uh,
1: uh, actually, to begin, uh, the order was reversed. Mm-hmm. Uh, religious religious problems and religious conversion came first, and then later on I accepted my own sexual identity. Uh, growing up to my family, uh founding uh, grandfather that is a, fan, a founding member of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, by extension, founder of Hamas uh, in the West Bank, Gaza, and uh, Jordan and Israel, uh, family that is extremely religious, extremely uh, anti-Semitic, and have made it their legacy, their, uh, their life work uh, to go up against Israel. In... Would
0: they class, class? Would they be categorized as Arab? Yes just a linguistic thing, since we're going in the little uh, nuances here, this, uh, doesn't anti-Semitic mean against people from that Middle East type area? So it actually it'd be anti-Arab and anti-Jew at the same time, even though po- colloquially it refers to being anti-Jewish.
1: Yes, and in recent years, I, must, I believe since the 60s, the term to has changed its meaning mm-hmm. in Webster and Merriam dictionaries to... To become an anti-Jewish, uh, I wouldn't quote me on the dates. Yeah. But, uh, so was it
0: interesting? How was it growing up in a household of such political uh, and community importance? In your own community, I am. What was your family revered? I'm sure that you had a very high position in 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 Palestinian the Palestinian community. Is that not correct?
1: That is correct. They they were quite revered. We were, uh, in a way. royalty of the West Bank.
0: What did it feel like to be the son of, uh, or the grandson of Saeed Bilal and the nephew of Muaz, Bakr, Hothman, and Obada? Is that, I mean, what did it feel like to walk around to play soccer, to go get bread at the bakery being that, that
1: person? Well, I name dropped a lot growing up. Uh... Whenever I needed something done or wanted something done, even as a child, I knew to name drop, uh, and I knew who which name and whose name should I should I drop if I'm uh, if I wanted a. Did the
0: imams give you special care or did they give you special attention? Did you have to memorize the Quran at all?
1: Well, I did. I did that, but that was because of my family. We started at three, and I finished at fourteen. Nonetheless, uh, yes. If I wanted to drop a threat, I would actually use my uncle's name if I wanted.
0: And did that work? How did people react?
1: Quite often did work. I remember uh, essentially blackmailing uh, the head of the Department of Education. uh, And that was
0: okay by a kid to do that to a man, a a secretary. Uh, Well,
1: she was actually a woman. To, to a cabinet
0: secretary, the secretary of education, um, who was threatened by a teenager. Uh,
1: at the time, I was in the seventh grade, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my grandfather wanted to force me to retract it. I was also hard-headed, and I did not retract, uh, refused to retract it. Uh-huh. And therefore, it actually went on, and that teacher got punished for uh, physically abusing me.
0: Oh my God! So you were definitely, you know, in a, in, a, in a revered part of society. You were you were kind of the elite of Palestinian society. It must take something fairly significant to renounce all that. I guess there was a lot of pressure. Let me before we even go into that, let's just get what what's going on in the mentality over there. So what what is Israel to them? What are Jews to people in your family? What were you taught to believe as kids? What what is Israel?
1: Enemies, monsters who've uh, dedicated their lives to uh, to harm and kill us. And why would the, the Israelis area. want to do that? Uh, according to them, it says Cir uh, animosity originating from the prophecy, God for uh, God forsake the Jews and and brought an Arab prophet. Therefore the Jews tried to poison the prophet. Uh, they, they, so the
0: Jews are upset that they didn't get it right,
1: and now uh, and now it became a historical animosity.
0: So uh, it's just it's just that they were upset that that Prophet Muhammad was the real Prophet and Allah the real God, and the Jews were upset that they didn't get it right. So that therefore they're angry. Is I that know, the,
1: God actually have given up on the Jews? Oh, God and has forsaken the, the Jews. The Arabs and the Jews therefore, are upset the Jews that they've are, been forsaken. Yeah, there are therefore the Jews have sworn. Uh so it's nothing to do animosity. with like
0: policy. It's it's more a spiritual animosity that in, results in it does it have is it a result of violence or is it is it who is it um Yeah, so uh Um yeah, so I mean what okay, so you're uh so there's anti Semitism, the Jews are not and then and then Let's see here. And, then, and that's the Jewish people. In the state of Israel, do, def, do they differentiate between Jews and Israelis?
1: Uh, very rarely, but uh, yes.
0: And what about the United States? How, does, how do Palestinians... Uh...
1: Uh, the, the Satan's older brother... Okay, so but Satan and is and going I'm, to be Israel. Yes. And I'm, but this can't and be true. I'm quoting. This
0: isn't true of, of like... Of, of, is this true of most Palestinian society or just your family?
1: For a period of time that I remember uh, going to any mosque, part of the prayer before the Friday prayer, before the main uh, Muslim Sunday uh-huh. service, uh, the, one, one of the uh, the... Uh, there's a uh, three or four prayers. Uh, God sent fire to devour Israel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So just a
0: lot of what about positive things? Isn't it, isn't it, is a lot of Islam about love? Do the preacher? Do the mullahs ever preach love towards other Muslims?
1: I never encountered a mullah that that would be around. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, and the imams then,
0: weren't ever preaching charity or love or kindness towards at least even other Palestinians.
1: Well, to depends. and when. However, what I want to actually say is that next to the four uh, to the four prayers against Israel, the fifth the fifth is always and uh, drown the White House in blackness. It's uh, and then it goes on to other prayers against uh, America. It, it they've always associated the two.
0: So how were they able to make a living? Is, I think there's not very much understanding among my listeners about exactly what's going on on the ground in the Palestinian territories. Um, and then, of course, and, and I'm also interested in knowing, okay, so so there's these occupied territories. What, what do they want? Do they want statehood? It, what would it take to get statehood? And would your family ever accept a two-state solution? Or is it really get rid of all the Jews and get rid of the Jewish state and get rid of Israel, and that's the only thing we'll do it, we'll accept, and, and a two-state solution is one step closer towards that end, but we'll never give up that end. Is that is that what's going on in your family's mind?
1: That's not just my family. There's a reason since Arafat took office in 1993, there wasn't an election until after he died. And there's a reason there hasn't been an election since Abbas took office. Why? Two. Uh Because uh, because immediately uh, the moment someone hints on the two state solution, uh, he Palestinians are opposed to it. It's treason to everyone. They actually use the word treason. They call them uh, they call them traitors, and it's and there is no chance. Do people
0: look wistfully upon the Ottoman Empire?
1: Um. Not
0: sure what you mean. So the Ottoman Empire um, dissolved at the, in 1918 at the end of World War One. Yes. And, it, and you had the Sultan who was located in modern day Istanbul um, and his empire at one point, not in the 20th century, but at one point extended all the way into Italy and Morocco, extended over close to the border of Iran, um, and of course encapsulated the entire area that is now known as Israel uh, and all the three major Muslim holy cities. Do people look back on that time and wish for empire and a sultan and a caliphate? Is that something they that they
1: do wish for? That not necessarily the Ottoman Empire, but again, they wish there's... that it was
0: all Muslim. Yeah, there's... and then not are they interested in democracy and electing their leaders or not really?
1: No, uh, in in Islam generally there is no election. It's uh, the the elders uh, decides to call up call upon a caliphate. It's literally the the system that brought the head of ISIS to be the called the Caliph. I mean, before we continue
0: with your identity, I'd like to bring Sarah back in the conversation. Now, Sarah, you've written extensively and you've worked extensively on Middle East policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we hear John reflecting on some of the ambitions and desires of Palestinian people, it puts into question some of the legislative initiatives the United States Congress has been trying to support. Of course... Every American president tries at some point to (laughs) build a legacy and a lot of and and one of the most amazing legacy building points that you could ever get is peace in the Middle East. You know, finally peace between the Jews Jewish Israelis and and the Muslim Palestinians. And that would be just a cornerstone of, of permanent legacy for any American president. You know, to what extent are American presidents and American politicians in in Congress um, deluding themselves? And to what extent are these policies ever actually viable uh, if they were to be implemented?
2: Well, I think um, they're deluding themselves to a tremendous extent after listening to, um, you know, John and other people who I love, who are, you know, some of my closest friends in the world who've lived under these circumstances and have had the courage to tell the truth and have been absolutely shunned by their community and their family because they have had the courage to tell the truth, Um, I take it from them a great deal, um, 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 greater um, than I would ever, ever take it from we who are living within what I call our two liquid assets, those Pacific, in the Atlantic Ocean, so far away um, from this very primitive, tribal, atavistic region of the world. And I think it's a siren song that everybody gets seduced by ever since 1993 with um, President Bill Clinton, um, President um, George W. Bush. They all, you know, so what it done what like
0: So, what ought the Congress to do?
2: I think that. The most important thing, after 16 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, we know that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not the linchpin for winning the hearts and minds in the Middle East. There's this huge 14th century fissure between Sunni and Shiite Islam. And I think there are many, many other conflicts that are much more important to the people in the ground to Muslims living in the ground there than the Israeli Palestinian dispute, and we have elevated this um, dispute to a point of um, that it really does not warrant. And what I think that they should leave this alone. I really do believe in peace from the bottom up, that there can be economic exchanges between. Palestinians and Israelis, I know it happens. I
0: is the perpetuation of the status quo the goal at this point?
2: I think and the real litmus test is what they teach their children. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that I have seen ever since the beginning of nineteen ninety three mm-hmm. the these videotapes of these beautiful Palestinian three, four, five year old children, you know, singing these songs, you know, with teachers and western dress and, um, you know, shows on Palestinian national television with these benign little pictures of Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. And they're saying, when I grow up, I want to be a Shahid uh, martyr. And I will not be happy until I walk through the gates of Jerusalem and my hands are drenched with Jewish blood. Mm -hmm. And the teachers are going, bravo, bravo, bravo. And to me, that is the worst kind of child abuse imaginable not only for my grandchildren that live in Israel, but for these Palestinian children. They're wishing them an early death.
0: So, so John, you were one of those children looking at Mickey Mouse.
1: I could most certainly attest to that. Uh, Kids play uh, thieves and cops. We play Jews and Arabs. Literally. But I take... uh, um, Sarah's like a mother to me. we and we uh, agree on almost everything, but I actually take a a different I have a different take on that matter. I actually think Israel is the pinpoint that all Arabs in their all Muslims in their different sects agree on uh, Iran, uh, whether it's Iran, Iraq, uh, Syria prior to the conflict uh even the egypt the egyptian jordanian public as well as the west bankers and gazans they all uh want to annihilate israel uh, there there is the palestinian israeli conflict and that is that's what uh organizations like hezbollah in lebanon and iran are using to uh, are actually circulating around making uh, deal of to uh, to justify their uh, their ways. and so what do you animosity. Think? So what, what do
0: we? What should we do about it? Nothing. Is the is the idea that America should I stay out?
1: Absolutely would no. Okay. I would not. I'm like America is not actually staying out. We never stayed out. Not since 1993. We are giving the Palestinians 80. percent Mm Four hundred million dollars, eighty percent of their uh, national income a year.
0: What's it like to be Palestinian? Is are there any job opportunities? Is it all poverty?
1: opportunities. I mean, I grew up to one of the richest families in the Middle East, Uh, but nonetheless, there is other families I know, and there there is classes, there is job opportunities, quite uh, at least. And I'm being extremely conservative. I did the research. For some event we I did with Sarah a few uh, I think last summer, and at least six uh, percent, which brings uh, the other uh, about thirty percent of the national income, uh-huh. another thirty percent of the uh, total income that is not really accounted for, uh, are the, are Arabs who work in Israel. Mm-hmm. They get their money from the settlements.
0: Now, are the are they is the My, West Bank part of Israel? Do they pay federal income taxes to Israel? No. And do the Palestinians have their own power plants and maintain their own water and sewer lines and their own electrical lines? They do. They do? Uh, I thought, isn't there an A, B, yeah. and C section?
1: Yes. Okay. And that's, uh, I mean, to dissolve a country and split it into two, uh, especially in the 90s after you have to start a whole new infrastructure system. Uh, that takes a while. They share, they used to share quite a fair amount. There is still uh, some areas where they share, where it comes from both sides. But at the end of the day, uh,
0: it's mostly autonomous at this point. It's functioning as, a, as an autonomous state.
1: But yes. Is there, any,
0: do you, is there any tax revenues that Palestinians remit to the Knesset?
1: No, to the Knesset no and what are, are their local there property is, there taxes fees that uh they pay but that's
0: uh to israeli government or to the to palestinian authority
1: well the palestinian authority they have to pay a certain fee for imported uh products that comes through israel which is what we would pay if we imported products through uh, nova scotia
0: but if you buy shawarma in the street for lunch are you paying a sales tax no. to the pa
1: uh, yes, to the BA, probably, uh, to, but definitely not to the Knesset.
0: I understand. Okay, so you were part of this, you grew up as part of one of the wealthiest families in the Middle East, a very politically powerful family, uh, and a wealthy family, by the way, in a, with a, surrounded by some poverty in, in the West Bank, and yet you forsook that. Why did you choose to leave Islam, and why was that... Incompatible with remaining with your family, and, and then why did you choose to leave for Canada and now work against the very things your family stands for?
1: Oh, okay, those, those are like a million questions. Yeah, and, Let's the, get started. and, and so each of them usually <laughs> takes a day to answer. Uh, they are often, most of these things, although they sound related, they are not. Uh, me being gay had nothing with me converting to Christianity. Me converting to Christianity, me being gay, had nothing to uh, to do with my. That population. had to do with you leaving the country, right? No.
0: No. And uh, weren't you threatened by your father that he threatened to kill you because you were Christian?
1: He, yes, that's for religious conversion. Uh, he also t- attempted to stab me and threatened me on CNN, I think, last year. Uh, he so, didn't refer
0: to you as John Calvin, though, did he?
1: No, I think he actually, he uh, compared me to. Saddam Hussein's son in law who was executed for uh, treason huh. on CNN on the record so your family
0: believes you've committed treason
1: yes since uh, Genu- which is why but uh, why
0: change sides
1: uh, simply because it's uh, a met again it's the truth and uh, there is one if there is one thing I have taken from my family I have taken from my mother and I am a Freudian by nature mm-hmm. uh, and believes, obviously, uh, there is uh, there is one doctrine I've adopted, and I I've always remembered, I've always kept is if so, if you're hiding something, if you if you know something to be true, you do not hide it. If you're hiding it, well, then you need to re-examine yourself uh, because you do not know that it is true. Otherwise, there is why would you be hiding it? Uh, my Religious conversion came at the age of nineteen. After I uh, read uh, well, prior to that, between fourteen, uh, somewhat between fourteen, mid 15, mid fourteen. You were to in mid prison 15. at one point, right? Yes. And that
0: influenced your decision.
1: Uh, that not religiously. That Uh-oh. actually influ- uh, that and in- opened my eyes. I had an encounter while I was in prison. Uh, with I encountered Jewish people, and I found that that. They are not the monsters I've been taught and brainwashed to believe they are. They are humans and they've actually shown more humanity than uh, my own family at uh, at some point to my... So how
0: do stories like that get brought to Palestinians such that there's just a de-escalation of violence? We're not talking about peace, but how is it that you begin to bring some of the humanity? How do you reveal the humanity of some of the Israelis to the Palestinians, and vice versa. I'm sure there are plenty of Israelis who look at a Palestinian and say, oh, that's a potential suicide bomber, right? How do you, and then you have the Palestinians looking at the Israelis and say, oh, look, they're all devils or whatever. How do you reveal the humanity of each side to the other in a non-threatening way, not to get perfect peace and and a utopia, but just to de-escalate violence a little bit? How do you get that? What would have influenced you? What did influence you? What would have influenced well, your friends?
1: What influenced me was a random act of kindness that uh, that rebelled in my uh, rebelled in my thoughts to realize that everything I've been taught was untrue. And even though I knew it, uh, it wasn't uh, I wasn't lied to purposefully mm-hmm. by my parents, by my family. They actually believed what they said that did not change the fact that it. I just encountered it and it was just simply not true. Uh, Your parents still love you? My father just threatened to have me killed on CNN a year ago. uh I think that answers that question. My mother. So the, the question
0: hand, is. So the answer is no, because sometimes I'm, I don't know what the mentality is. Oh, is he yeah, killing no, you out I, of an no, act of was, kindness to spare you and your family shame? Like what is no, his mentality? I was
1: actually going to that. That's my father. On, on the other hand, my mother and I have just. Uh, she disowned me formally on January seventh, uh, twenty fifteen. Uh, when I came out with public statements in support of Israel for the and but she, she had no happened. choice for her own safety, right? No, she that wasn't her safety was not threatened. Uh, she was indignant. So she remains indignant. I see. Uh, but she, uh, with a lot of work, uh, me insisting and not giving up, uh, we've actually. Started talking uh, recently. Over the just, internet? Uh, yeah, just last year. Uh, actually, just this year, we finally be- uh, began to talk. And I had one of the best conversations I've had with my mother in my entire life, yesterday.
0: How did that go? How does she react to all this? How does she understand? Does she think you've been brainwashed?
1: Well, she she realizes that there is differences. as She... In some way, she does feel she has a sense of loss. She did lose a son. And I had to explain to her that, well, you didn't necessarily, necessarily lose a son. I am just not the same person. I was 19. My frontal lobe hasn't even developed at the time. I'm 26. Whether I stayed or left, I would have changed. You can't... That hope that I would actually be one day what you wanted me to be, uh, what you remember is just unrealistic that you cannot turn back time. How did she respond? Uh, my mother is a very intelligent and uh, wh- woman with two PhDs and uh, she that made sense, uh, that logic made sense to her. And then uh, we discussed chemistry and synthesizing elements uh, and that was such a progress.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I'd like to, we are uh, wrapping, approaching the end of this podcast. I'd like to wrap it up with, uh, from both of you, I guess we'll start with Sarah. Um, I'd like to hear from you, Sarah, about what it is that's been motivating you to work uh, in advocacy in this realm of Israeli-American relations um, and what you hope your legacy will be. Um, perhaps you could address your audience, uh, you could address uh, supporters of Emmet and s- speak to them about why it is you created the foundation that you continue to work for it and then what you hope at the end of your career you will have accomplished.
2: Okay. Um, it would be really um, horrific for me to see my people come this far um, since the Holocaust and to have developed their own beautiful state, um, where actually John had to run as a gay person, well, as a Christian, or even before just to run for humanity, you know, for his own, his own safety and where people actually have human rights and dignity. And the fact is there, you know, there, there are, Gay parades, gay pride parades in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem. Not every Haredi person or ultra-Orthodox person embraces gays, and they should. But, I mean, if you care about human rights and Palestinian rights, which I do, then you should try to emulate what Israel is. And it would be just crushing for me to see Israel being destroyed by this, Implacable hatred that does really surround it. And I know a lot of us want to willfully blind ourselves and believe that it isn't there, but that's wishful thinking. And, you know, I, if there's anything that I've learned from my, my family's legacy, is that our enemies mean business. And when art people say that they want to destroy you, we better stand up and take notice and read the writing on the wall. So my legacy, and I am getting to that point. I am a grandmother. I am getting on in years. I mean, I wanna, I wanna support true Palestinian rights. I don't think the Palestinian leaders are supporting human rights. And I want, and I want Israel to survive. And as a Mecca, if I could use that word, of 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 liberalism, and um, you know, for for us to look at each other, not. You know, as an accident of ascription of our birth, you know, that you're a Palestinian, you're a Jew, you're an Arab, you're a Muslim, you know, but or gay or straight or Christian or whatever, you know, but you're a human being. And to be able to just take away all those layers and layers of socialization that puts us in little boxes and let us just see each other for what we really are.
0: And John, if you would speak to the Bilal's right now, speak to them. They're listening. I want you to speak to them and tell them why it is you've done what you've done and what you hope the impact will be of your actions.
1: There's several reasons for, for my actions, for the route I've taken life and for my choices. Uh, one of them is pro- probably, undeserved guilt, uh, undeserved inherited guilt uh, although i did disavow my family uh yet they they still who they are and they've done what they've done uh most people uh have uncle frank who gets drunk on thanks on thanksgiving i have uncle man who murders 30 people and sends uh, another wave of suicide bombers from prison uh so in a way i uh, in a, uh, that's one of my one of the motivations uh and the fact that Israel is the only con- the only country that have human rights implemented that is- n- its human rights are not contained and they are universal and they spread and to if israel was to be left alone its values its the the goodness will actually is contagious and it will spread around uh, into a world where i would have been killed for so many different reasons i mean i i do have a death sentence uh, hanging in the west bank is there a uh, law on it? yes and there's uh, it's it's been signed by the president in 2011 uh by abbas
0: are you are you in danger in Washington D.C. or in New York?
1: Well, um, I am as safe as I could be, I guess. Uh, however, uh, my legacy would not necessarily be to make up for my family's mistake. That is, I take no responsibility for that, and I refuse to allow myself to go down that rabbit hole. However, however, I am inspired by people like Sarah, uh, by the first Israeli person I met, a woman when I was 14 years old, uh, who owned a bar or was a bartender, I'd never seen a bar at at that point, and I entered, I ordered a sandwich and went out to smoke, and she came at me yelling with her very little Arabic mixed with some English at the time uh, that I'm too young to small in a very motherly tone uh, it's those memories of the m- memories of the bass events that transpire at the moment, me being here in this in Sarah's house uh, her taking me in as a, almost being almost as a family member uh, it's more inspiring than I could even produce to satisfy that the sense that I need to actually give that I need I need to make a difference
0: so that has been Sarah Stern founder, president of, of the Endowment for the Middle East Truth AMET. Uh, the formerly of AJC and the Zionist Organization of America, um, responsible for numerous pieces of legislation supporting Israel, um, author of numerous, of, of two books about the Middle East. Uh, and John Calvin, uh, an immigrant, a Palestinian by birth, who has changed multiple identities, uh, uh, comes from a, a, a on a, a family of, of leaders of, of the Palestinian People in the West Bank um, who has come to embrace identities wholly, entirely different than that which he inherited by birth. And Sarah and John speak about advancing the public interest within the context of humanity. They speak about being exposed to acts, to random acts of kindness. In fact, that's how John described uh, the catalyst for his change was um, uh, a random act of kindness inspired, um, uh, in effect was able to lift the veil uh, that had been, uh, he seems to think, laid over his eyes uh, and over the eyes of many Palestinian people. Both speak about advancing the public interest through, through uh, a sense of, of right and a sense of what of what constitutes human, human rights. And uh, their support for Israel is, is resolute, and their embrace of the humanities is clear. So, Sarah, John, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Sarah. So thank much.
0: you, Jordan. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes. Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time.